welcome to Blind Shovel, an arts and music podcast. Today we get to hear the perspective of David Lauer, co-founder of Mystery Meat Media, a stop-motion animation studio in Northern California. Hope you enjoy. What's up? Oh, hey. How's it going, Michael? Good. How are you, David? Doing doing all right. Just here in the studio. Just finished up a shot. And um yeah, I realized uh I should have maybe asked for some some prompts. I have no idea what you want to talk about. Um No, but, um, no, I don't do that. Oh, okay. We just, sure we just talk. All right, for sure. <laughs> Because we haven't spoken in a long time. Are you still it, living in the Bay? I assume not. You must be living in LA, right? No, no. I'm, I am not only living in the Bay. I have started a stop motion studio in the Bay. So right. I am Mystery Meat Media. Media. That's right. Yeah. So um, I have been here now for since 2009. I guess that's put it around 13 years here in the Bay. Um, so where are you so, from originally? I don't recall. Uh, Massachusetts. So a little tiny town called Sudbury, Massachusetts, like a little colonial mythological town where they all uh, dress up with tri-corner hats every so often and and march around with muskets and stuff, reenacting Battle of Lexington and Concord. Um, Moved out to the Bay for uh, California College of the Arts. Been here ever since. Made it work. Nice. Were you always interested in stop motion? You know, I really started getting into it in high school. I had a art teacher named Mr. Justice, uh, <laughs> Mr. Shea Justice. And he was, he still is a total badass, um, incredible artist, really just, um, he, he had made like these scrolls of current events through his perspective this is like you know late 2000s um wound up being like thousands of feet long that were getting displayed in museums because they were just these like enormous sort of diaries visual diaries that he'd been constructing for years and years and years um but one semester because i was one of those art kids that was just hanging out in the art room during lunch, he wanted to start a, uh, start an animation tutorial class. Um, and we tried out a whole bunch of different types of animation, him and, uh, Mr. Kimura, Ken Kimura, those were the two teachers and they just opened a whole bunch of different doors from stop motion, hand-drawn animation, trying some really basic stuff out on like, uh, whatever came with like the, the Apple desktops we had at school. But, mm-hmm. um, I got, I got hooked on animation and it wasn't specifically stop motion then. Um, but I did love like claymation and, uh, paper cutouts and stuff like that. But I, I was open to almost any type of animation until college where, where I had determined that I, I wanted to go to school for it. But um, I, I kind of 
initially, I've, I've since fallen in love with stop motion beyond any reasonable level of obsession. But the first thing that really got me into stop mo was um, that I didn't have to color things like hand-drawn animation, mm-hmm. coloring those things in. I have, I have no good color sense. Maybe I've gotten a little bit better before, but there was this huge relief with stop motion where materials just have a color inherently and you can choose things that way rather than applying them with colored pencils or markers or whatever. It's just that spoke to me so much more naturally than like this second process where you have to color everything and ink it or or whatever. It, it always haunted me. It always doing just like pen and ink stuff, all black and white when I was drawing. Yeah, yeah really yeah. funny way in a really funny thing to be appealing for me it was like i used to have this like lego stop motion set that came with a shitty little camera and oh hell yeah i just like the idea that i could make things literally come to life which the name implies obviously animation but i like that uh you just didn't want to color things that's cool (laughs) yeah i mean uh i i tried doing uh lego stop motion (laughs) earlier than the high school class, but I didn't, I didn't have a special camera for it. My, my first camera was this little micro DV tape recorder. And so I could just press record and stop as fast as I could. And that was pretty much, I couldn't do a single frame. So it was just short bursts of video, um, and, uh, not being able to see what you're doing and everything. I used that more for, um, like match cuts and and doing like stupid live action videos with my my buddies and having people teleport and stuff rather than full-fledged stop motion i didn't really get into that until until high school are there any early memories that of stop motion whether it's like ray harryhausen or for me george pal and wallace yeah okay uh uh george pal is ridiculous Amazing, amazing! Yeah. It's like just all wood replacements. Like the amount yeah. of labor that went into that must have been incredible. I would have loved to see his workshop. Um, I believe his first workshop was destroyed, if I'm not mistaken, by the war. Because I think he's he's Hungarian. Um, but yeah, yeah, I feel like, and even with Wallace and Gromit, that one of their early studios was like entirely burnt down. That's the side. But that's just crazy to me, the determination of animators. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we're worth putting out there that Wallace and Gromit studio was not destroyed by the Germans. Yeah, I mean, the those like those were like di- like studios that were lost. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is just a culmination of so many people's work. But the, the first stop motion I ever got was uh, a collection of Primus's music videos. Mm. Um, there was an album, I think, called Animals Should Not Act Like People. And it, it was like a little like four or five CD song or uh, album, but uh, four, four or five song album. But it also came with every single one of their music videos. And they had so much stop motion in their music videos. I mean, they had animation of all sorts, but they clearly loved doing stop motion. There is um, Lacquerhead, 
and uh, southbound pachyderm were two really like crazy stop motion videos. And then they uh, also, I think it, they they included this not technically Primus, but another Les Claypool band um, did a cover of "The Devil Went Down to Georgia," and that is just this beautiful, beautiful uh, music video. And remarkably, it actually had credits, which you don't see in most music videos. Um, and there were just like these lists of names, some of whom I, I've now met. Others, I've you know heard of the legends that, that were working on these projects, but that was actually um, uh, uh, Tracy Sweet is was one of the, the um, puppet fabricators, um, and she actually was a, I, I had crossover with her over at Tippet Studios, and um, she's phenomenal uh, rigor, um, both both practical and on the computer. Um, but that was that was a whole other chapter of, of stuff doing stuff with Tippet, um, which came so Primus. These Primus videos are this initial seed. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Before that, were you just were you a young child who would draw, and people thought you were an artist, or were you something else? Um, I think I was like a a, a forest child. I would I spend all of my time out in the woods. Um, in uh, my my parents' house had just right up against endless acres of just like public forest. And I would just do a Lord of the flies, paint nice. my face and berry juice and build little forts and make, make javelins and stuff. Um, but I think if that really played into it, it was just um, now, you know, waxing poetic about stop motion. It's all about like, it's, it's the form of animation that you can have a physical relationship with. It's also like an emotional connection that you're making with it. It's just like you can't help but touch something and it triggers all of these juices to start flowing. And um, it's obvious, you know, stop motion, you touch the puppets, but it's not as obvious just how sentimental you get about these puppets. You know, if you're building one and it's got a face and it's got character, obviously, but if you're like, animating a, a, a coffee mug or a pair of scissors like suddenly those get loaded with all this sentimental value by the time you're done animating it and uh i i i can't help but be a very sentimental person um i guess it, it, i don't know if that's from doing stop motion so much or what's clued me into doing stop motion but this really helps me understand that like i can get attached to almost anything there's a process that i can undertake and suddenly it loads up an object with all of this meaning for me um right i never never had that with with hand drawn or a little bit of computer animation that i've done it's never been like this you know actual connection that i'm having having with the the subject um well, you could also take objects you already have a connection to and animate them. And that's obviously very appealing. You know, like oh, a, to yeah. a toy. That's how, that's how I used to do it. It was just like, I already liked Legos, you know. And then it was just about building narratives around them. And I think the idea of making forts, at least I have four brothers. I don't know if you have siblings, but the feeling of of those days of my youth are... It's the same feeling. I would imagine like building a little studio and having these little rigs and, and, and just figuring things out together 
probably appeals to the forest boy. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I mean, it is a remarkably collaborative medium. Um, you, I really do get to work with some incredible people who are not all, you know, um, animation industry people, which has been one of the fun things about working in the Bay, like Portland and LA are inundated with incredible stop motion talent. Just people are making movies and commercial studios all over the place. While that's not quite as much of a presence here in the Bay area, there there's a couple Titans around here and has a long history of stop motion, but um, we're also able to work with a lot of people who are bringing other craft talents to the table and stop motion can use all of those things. You don't need to be savvy with a specific software. You don't have to be a perfect draftsman to, to join on a stop motion production. If you have the ability to wire things up, if you've got an eye for, for light, if you're good with a needle, if you know how to make stuffed animals, if you're good with paper. So it's just sort of taking all of these different people and, and, you know, building the fort of stop motion. Um, and you just really get to, to discover some pretty incredible things along the way. Um, you know, how many so studios, much, yeah. so like, I'm just thinking about this from a economical perspective, but if someone wants to do a stop motion video. Yeah. How many, I mean, you may not know the exact number, but how many studios specialize in that in America, in the world? Like how, how common is it? Well, I mean, I, I can definitely tell you there are hot spots. Mm -hmm. Um, there are probably just a handful, less than 10 studios worldwide that are able to make a feature film. Um, is that your goal? I think making original content is my goal, whether that's a movie or not. Um, depends on the story. I don't really hold the concept of a feature length movie. I don't exalt it over series or short films or anything like that. I think as long as the story is being told in the appropriate amount of time, and if it's something that I get to tell as an original story, that would be incredible. That is a, is absolutely a goal, whether it's a movie or not is, is yet to be decided. So would that be in contrast to doing like a Nickelodeon thing with, with these are these characters that are pre-established. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of fun things when, I mean, we actually got to do a, a Nickelodeon yeah, I see that here. project and that was, that was a blast. You know, it, we were sort of joining in on a story that was already being told. A lot of the things we were doing on the first part of that was actually directly recreating Nickelodeon shows in stop motion. So they, they have toys of these things and we're literally beat for beat recreating these, these drawn shows, which is as unoriginal as it gets, except right. for the fact that we're, we're translating it into the 3d. And so there's all these fun, like engineering and lighting and technical problems to solve, but no narrative solutions are, are needed. Um, but when we got to do original stuff, uh, they gave us some, some working guidelines, like lots of color and have something happening all the time. Like we can't lose people's attention span for less than a second. So bam, 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 bam. Like the pace is frenetic. Um, which is another thing that I don't think I'm naturally 
uh, inclined towards, but it's such a fun challenge. I mean, it doesn't even matter if I've done so many stop motion projects that are as far away from my natural inclinations as possible, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't matter. I'm still so into it because it is still stop motion and, uh, it, it just unlocks something that I just can't, I can't help but bubble over about it. It doesn't matter how, uh, I am not the target demographic of whatever toy or show I'm, I'm a part of. Um, I think I can just be enthusiastic about the process. So it's an inexhaustible love that you have for it. I mean, so far, um, how long you said it's like about a decade. Yeah. So, uh, I guess I was, I started working on, on professional projects when I was 19, 20. So yeah, about 12, 12, 13 years now. Um, and that, that's not constant. Um, there was, a number of years where I was bouncing between computer animation and stop motion. Um, really? Yeah. Uh, my first stop motion break, I'd, I'd done a few, you know, tried out these, like make a join up on a studio that's right out of graduation. And, um, but the real, the real break was, uh, mad God mm-hmm. over at Tippett studio. Um, Tom Gibbons was a teacher over at, California College of the Arts. And I was his only stop motion student. Um, everybody else was doing other forms of animation. And Tom Gibbons is a animation supervisor over at Tippett. And he is uh, a true stop motion artist. I mean, it, it's not even about an animator. He's a full filmmaker. Um, has made beautiful, beautiful films. And uh, he brought me in to volunteer on Mad God. And that was really my first exposure to um, so many different elements of stop motion. I mean, things I I had no concept. uh, I I would have never figured out in a million years unless they were shown to me. Um, And I volunteered on that for I don't know, 10 years or so, 10 or 11 years. Um, and I've been working on, on Mad God for a couple of years. Um, I graduated trying out a few, uh, I had an initial animation job in San Francisco when that fell apart. Uh, he, uh, Phil Tippett invited me to do an internship for computer animation over at Tippett. And that was, that turned into, working on computer animated projects for them five, six years. Um, I, I honestly, is, don't, is that appealing yeah. to you? You know, having said what you said earlier about the physical touch and that connection is that, I mean, I personally, if I had infinite time, I would do things physically still. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I kind of, I almost resent the fact that I've transitioned to like, 80% digital drawing, but it's just efficient. And, but yeah, do, can you connect to the process the same way when doing it digitally? I would say it is a cerebral form of the medium. That makes it sense, is, yeah. you know, it, it's with stop motion, which will forever and always be my, my true love. 
um, it's, it's a poetic thing, you know, you, you do it. And even if someone asks you to do it again with just one tweak, it will not be the exact same. It'll, it'll have all these other little performance pieces. Um, there are some studios like, you know, has you do mm-hmm. almost mm-hmm. the exact same thing on twos and then you do it on ones for the final, final take. And it's supposed to be very, very similar. Um, but almost always there's going to be some differences from take to take, but with the digital stuff, you can just narrow in on the smallest things because so, it's just so iterative. You can just right. keep polishing it. You know, I remember saving like version 162 on a certain file where it's just, you are nitpicking things to a incredible degree. And, um, I don't mean to make it sound too negative about it. Uh, it didn't, it, it was an incredible education. I would not be nearly the stop motion animator that I am without that time doing computer animation. I think the two of them can blend together and you can learn lessons from one or the other, but I can't, uh, I think one of my, my favorite things to do is just to bubble over with excitement about something. That's just like, everybody wants to be excited all the time. <laughs> Why not? Uh, and, and computer animation just doesn't do that for me in the same way as stop motion. Um, but, uh, there is, you get to really have some incredible opportunities and experiences and, uh, collaborative efforts with people in CG that I don't think would be possible in stop motion. I mean, unless you get to like a certain, certain level where you, you want to talk about, you know, the follow through of hair on an ear or something like that. It's just yeah. not really possible <laughs> with, with right, stop right. motion. Um, uh, but that, that sort of granularity is something I can really appreciate. And I mean, I think that must also happen with, with your, your digital illustration. You could probably continue to refine things and maybe even spend more time on a digital drawing than you would practically. Right. Um, yeah, it depends what you're good at. For me, art is the, it's the initial process of ideation. So you have divergent and then you need convergent in the end, right? Like you could have a million ideas yeah. and then you need to strengthen the practice of committing to one and finishing one. I think I'm like pretty good at convergent. So the digital, the digital process just helps me finish things quicker. Um, I don't get like super neurotic and nitpicky about it normally. Um, but when I drew my comics physically, there was far more acceptance in a way where it was like, well, that's how that line looks. I can definitely get like, let's redraw that line a bunch of times, but it's almost like there's too much choice sometimes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, but, but uh, in contrast, it taught me, I was afraid of using color early on because I didn't want to waste this tube of paint, but without that concern, I could just play with color digitally. And that helped me get to my color palette much quicker and without fear of losing money. So there's pros and cons there. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, the more I do stop motion professionally for, for clients, the, the, 
the bigger uh, pre-production element we have becomes digital where, you know, I naturally want to just thumbnail and storyboard everything out with pen and pencil, take photos of it and make a, a little, you know, rough draft version of the animation that way. But exactly as you're saying, you know, you can just refine things, find your color palette and create a mock-up that you can easily edit so that by the time whoever you're working for is saying like, okay, like let's do this. There's no surprises. There's no questions. We aren't burning through all these materials, um, making rough drafts and animatics, but because like when you do, when you finally do the, the real take, um, you want to make sure everyone's on board with exactly as how it's going to look because redoing it is, uh, is a pain. And that, that sort of commitment to the analog process that happens with stop motion is, I think, a really invaluable part of the medium because we have so many uh, digital processes that people can continue to change their mind about. It actually requires people to, to buckle up and commit, um, yeah. which I, I love that. Like, when it's done, it's done. You break down the set and there's no more, you know, tweaks. It is what it is. And yeah, yeah, yeah. there's the a finality. Closed. Yeah. 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 It reminds me of the horror of like art direction in terms of editorial illustration. The art director's just gotten more and more control over time because of what you're talking about. Whereas in the past, I had teachers in illustration school where they were like, I just showed up with a painting. You know, I was given the prompt before I show up with a painting and they scanned it. And that was it. There was no going back to, can you change this color? Can you change that? Mm -hmm. So that part kind of sucks. I think where it's like the powers that be the client, whoever's hiring you, they use you more like a tool when they can get all these revisions in place. But if they were truly to just trust you, and, yeah. and take that leap of faith. That's the most freeing thing that could happen. Probably the best outcome too. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I wonder if, if there's a way or do you, do you know if there, you have had clients who are more willing to do that? The smart ones. Yeah. They, yeah. they recognize, like, I always think of uh, no country for old men. You ever see that? Yeah. Because, yeah. because Shugar or whatever his name he he gets offended when Woody Harrelson is hired because he was like, you pick the right tool and then you let that process develop. You know, you trust that you chose the right person for the job and then you let him finish the job. You don't intervene. Uh, that's how I feel like a good art director acts is they understood that they chose the right person. They trust them and they put it in their hands, you know, and they're, they're not going to be like a helicopter parent being like, no, actually, this isn't going to work for us. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've definitely run into both schools. Um, some of my mentors are adamant that, you know, if you're going to be a director, it's all about a good director is a good delegator. You mm -hmm. just get a, you get a badass crew around you. You get people you trust to pull the job off and you let them do it. Um, conversely, and that, that's almost more of an experience I've had on like truly, you know, 
cinematic projects, movies get made with that more in mind, uh, in my experience, compared to commercials, um, which I've had a lot more experience with people um, where we actually like let them look through our camera. Uh, we have, really? a, we have like a whole, you know, connected network that allows the client to see the subjects that we're doing stop motion on and make sure that everything is like exactly up to code, you know, cause a lot of toys have specific lookbooks that they need to, they, they need to have a specific, you know, uh, touch here and there the clothes sit exactly like this or the accessories do exactly like that and giving the client the ability to look through the camera has gotten me the closest to actually having somebody you know they they know that they can't ask for iterations so they just interrupt you in the middle of the animation it's like rather than someone going into your painting and adjusting the lines and uh, changing color palettes, it's like your hands are going to grab the puppet and you hear a, whoa, 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 whoa. Can you uh, change the eye line a little bit? Yeah. <laughs> it was like, like mid-process. Um, and that, that's about as helicoptery as I've ever experienced, um, which is something I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to deal with. It's surreal to work that way. <laughs> um, you know, letting the client see through my camera as I'm doing stop motion hasn't popped my cork. I think it's the, the what was hasn't. What does that mean? What does that? Mean? I haven't. I haven't blown up. I haven't gotten really frustrated and angry at a client before. Never yeah. yelled at anybody. Probably. I don't know, maybe I could try and find someone I've yelled at, but um, that's something that's definitely out of the ordinary for a lot of other animators. When I when I was telling some folks about this system of just letting the client see exactly what we're doing, their eyes bulge. It's typical that you just, in traditional stop motion, you never interrupt or even poke your head in between the curtains of uh, while the stop motion animator is at, at work. You know, you don't want to cause a shadow or right, break right. their focus or something like that. But the thing is, in, in this weird work from home world that we're at, is that it's decentralized office corporate like corporate jobs, but it's also decentralized productions. So we've actually gotten a lot of work because we're willing to be part of this decentralized system where we're willing to just like open up our cameras, let the client look through it. They don't have to be here. We don't have to be in LA. Um, we can be animating things, get the client approval and work out a system with them in ways that were uh, not even, you know, thought of before, uh, before this whole uh, pandemic situation really tossed things on their heads. And it's opened up a lot of opportunities um, that, that's directly led to Mystery Meat Media uh, and the formation of this studio. Right. So obviously you have a certain professionalism about you and you, did you always want to form this studio? Was that like an obvious outcome of yeah? I mean, where I you were going. This is the fruition of probably a ten-year dream. I think this was started in high school when I was just doing animation for the first time. It was like, oh yeah, all all the original ideas I want to tell. 
um, uh, funny enough, uh, cr- nothing like creating my own studio to stop me from making original work. Um, cause it's just the, the busyness of running right. a of thing course. like this is, is eaten up a lot more of my free time. It's not so much of a clock out at 6 PM and work on my own stuff for the evening. Um, so, uh, but at the same time, we're, it's impossible to think of making uh, enough stop motion completely alone. <laughs> it, it just, my, uh, my studio partner, Ree Crawford, made a incredible movie called The Moon's Milk. Wound up getting uh, narrated by Tom Waits. It's about 15 minutes and it took evenings in between his day job around seven years to do. Wow. Now, it sounds like a lot of time, seven years, but, you know, if seven people worked on that and they also had day jobs and they made a 15 minute movie in one year, well, you could probably do that 15 minute movie in less than a year if everyone was dedicated towards it. Right. And suddenly like, oh, you know, a crew of like five or six people spend six months and make a cool short film. That sounds awesome. That is actually a remarkable turnaround for stop motion. Um, But if I want to make as much stuff as I do, it has to be collaborative effort. It has to be a joint effort. Um, So making the studio is definitely the first step. And now it's just about establishing ourselves and sort of saving up enough surplus from these projects so we can try and uh, make these projects happen in a way that isn't reliant on volunteer labor or, or donated time or anything like that. But actually the, the other part of this dream is making a studio that has fair and generous wages and that people are excited about working with, not just out, out of a passion, which a lot of people do in this industry, but also because it's a way that they can actually have a, you know, decent quality of life while still pursuing their passions. Um, cause it doesn't have to be just one way or the other. And a lot of people get taken advantage of, uh, myself included over, over the years I've run into a few projects. It's just, I do the time over, uh, money received and I'm making like $3 an hour right. <laughs> like right. when I wrap up. Um, so it's, it's just the idea of being able to pay people fairly. Um, is is, a, is huge. Like I'm not going to make a movie where I'm. It's all interns or whatever. Is there a studio you look at right now that you're trying to, you know, it's like your north star? Um, there are some really incredible studios down in LA, um, uh, that I feel like are two or three steps ahead of us. Um, open the portal is I have a lot of crossover with the the crew and animators who've worked with that. And they've gotten into pitching their own shows. They're making original content. Um, and they just have, uh, they're, they're a a big inspiration. They have definitely some different styles. Um, but that would be an incredible place to get to, um, at the, you know, the true, true North star, uh, would be like um the the czechoslovakian studios 
the 80s and 90s of Yuri Trinka and Yuri Barta and Jan Svankmeyer, Quay brothers. They they had, you know, a certain amount of government funding (laughs) that isn't really possible in in our context um, that allowed them to just truly embrace the craft in a way that I haven't seen since. Um, but I think that obsession with craft is something I really want to continue here at this one. Yeah. Frank Meyer's wild. Yeah. And I think, I think just by like, it reminds me of, I bought this DVD of the cameraman's revenge. Oh, the Starevich. Yeah. And I love that, that DVD. That one's crazy. Speaking of using like objects that you that are real that you find that one's made with actual bugs yeah i mean i am blown away because that was that was early early 1900s like Mm -hmm. i want to say the 19 teens yeah it's 1912 i'm looking at it right here yeah Yeah. okay so that that does line up because i had heard starovich was sort of um the uh he would make bedtime stories for the SARS children. Um, hmm. and, you know, and he also crazy. made movies after, you know, the, the Bolshevik revolution and stuff like that. So he, he kept going, but, um, that it just feels like this weird, like collision of my timelines, like monarchy and stop motion animation overlapped. <laughs> like, <that's just laughs> a weird one. Um, feels like, you know, for a 100-year-old craft, I, uh, has a remarkable amount of history to it. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's amazing. I mean, I don't know what it is. It's always... I love, like, Miyazaki as well. I just love animation. Mm-hmm. Stop motion, especially Starevich. Is that how you say it? Starevich? I think, I think it's I think so. Yeah, yeah, there's just something, like, creepy and strange not in a schwankmeyer way which is like overtly weird yeah Um, but the mascot which is 1933 by him as well is insane yeah i mean i uh, i think there's a direct infusion of someone's style in stop motion animation when they were shooting on film because that we've lost uh, with digital stop motion because they didn't have any way of seeing what they were animating and double checking that their motions were smooth. Um, Mm -hmm. All they had were surface gauges. Um, I don't know if you've got one of those pop on the frame. Um, Surface gauge. So a surface gauge is a machinist's essentially pointer a big metal weight with an articulated arm that comes down to like a metal stick with a, with a point on it. Okay. And the idea was that you could use it to, uh, you would start your frame, you would point it at the tip of the nose of the character or tip of a fingertip or an eyebrow. You could have dozens of these surface gauges pointed at different parts of your puppet. And so when you shift to the puppet, you would see just how far it's moved from the last frame that you've oriented all these surface gauges to record. Mm. And then when you think you've got the right distances, 
because you'd remember in your head, oh, uh, the nose should be getting faster. So I'll just remember to have an ever increasing gap in between the nose and the surface gauge. And that would track your, your speed. So you could have these like physical artifacts that you'd put on your stage in order to remember where you were last frame. Some people didn't use these. Um, some people did. Ray Harryhausen, uh, if you frame through, you know, Jason and the Argonauts or uh, Sinbad or, or something like that, you you can see he's forgotten to remove the surface gauge from <laughs> the, the frame and it just pops on and pops off for, for a frame. Um, but uh, what about that, that? What do you think? Why does that reveal the personality of the maker more? As opposed well, to digital process. Suddenly you're actually just, um, there's no moderator. There's no computer that's in between you. And that's mm. like, Oh, Hey, uh, by the way, like you didn't move that shoulder quite enough or Hey, your, your, your animation's looking a little erratic. You might want to smooth things out or, you know, you would, you would shoot things on film and then you'd send it off to get developed and it would take like a couple of weeks or maybe you had a connection with the photography lab that would let you get your footage back earlier, but you wouldn't see what you'd animated for weeks. So you're, you're just essentially going in blind animating how you would naturally, maybe you have a little bit of information from these surface gauges, but it would just, it made those like super creepy frenetic movements that Starevich and all these like early animators, you know, Willis O'Brien, uh, the, one of the American godfathers of, of stop motion did like, uh, King Kong. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that was sort of, uh, mighty Joe young were the ones where he and Harryhausen, um, or he was sort of bringing up Harryhausen as an animator. And it just sort of has this like creepy movement <laughs> to it. Um, there's <laughs> yes. just like this, this, like, I don't know. It, it is like very obviously a doll that's come to life. Um, and I think, you know, with today's audience and how much animation we've all seen, we know a little bit more how like, well, that's not how a giant monkey would move. And it's like, okay, that that's very much our lens through today. But at the time, like, you know, people hadn't seen that shit. Right, right. <laughs> I don't know what they would have been thinking. Um, but it, it was, it was, you didn't have something pointing out all of your errors and mistakes. Um, and by that, but, you mean like the process of editing. There isn't like a thing in the computer that tells you that it seems erratic, right? Well, I mean, I am very much a digital stop motion animator. Um, I am looking at, I'm, I'm going back and forth and playing mm-hmm. the last like eight frames, seeing how the motion is looping and, Oh, I'm, I'm a little far on those fingertips. That's a big move there. I'm going to go back to the puppet. I'm going to soften this. I'm going to, Oh, maybe I'll spend a couple more frames before I start jumping back up. Like I can review my animation instantly and I can see how it's, working with all the frames beforehand, which is stellar. It's incredible. You can really polish and and make very deliberate choices, very informed animating. Um, but at the same time, it, it goes against another philosophy of stop motion where that sort of uh, physical emotional connection 
I'm, I'm, I'm bringing this like cerebral computer animation perspective of like, uh, making all these fixes. But, um, uh, Peter Lord, uh, one of the founders of Hardman studios, um, he is a proponent of like, you never break eye contact with the puppet. Like, <laughs> you're always looking at it. You, you do all the adjustments. You take the photo without staring away from it and you go back to it and you just sort of get into this trance with the puppet where you just, you, you're so connected to it that you just know how to animate this thing smoothly. You're, you're, you're in the zone. Um, yeah, that's I've done that a couple times. I've done that a couple times. I was going to say, do you try to recreate it? Try to set that limit, that constraint? I, <laughs> I, I have a, uh, this is not, not a truly traumatic experience, but just a, <laughs> a, a uh, I was given this as a challenge uh, on Mad God where um, this incredible uh, lighter, Jim Opperall, um worked on all sorts of crazy movies throughout film history. Just an incredible guy spent like two and a half weeks setting up this shot in mad God. That is like the climactic reveal of part two. It's like this epic shot of a, of a man raising his torch to reveal that he is merely one of millions that have come before him. And it's like all this weight of the fact that he's part of this vicious cycle has come crashing down upon him. It's like this emotional climax of the movie the the entire studio has been working on it for weeks months probably and uh phil asks me if i want to animate this i i jump at the chance and he's like okay well someone else is going to take the photos for you and he just puts a surface gauge in my hand it's like you're going to do it blind Hmm. um seeing that this is his movie um remarkable amount of trust <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and um i get the shot i get the shot and ideally in this shot you would have the slow dramatic rise you bring the light up it's washing over the the set you're seeing you're revealing everything just like the director wants it and you want to like sit on that shot you want to have a few seconds for the audience just to absorb the scene but i had just figured well i am, he's lifted this thing up i don't want him just to be there still i need to like shift his weight i need to have him like just slowly move his weight from in between his two legs to over his right foot and instead of having a nice undistracting weight shift that would just keep the scene alive it was like elvis hips this just <laughs> this pop this little like sassy hip pop that uh i just started sweating bullets when i saw that this shot was done and um to this day i like the editors and the compositors will like bring up that Elvis hip pop from like eight years ago. <laughs> um, Did they leave it in the film? 
They did not leave it in the film. I feel like personally, it really needed a couple more seconds for the audience to look at it, but instead they just cut that, they cut that part of the shot short. Um, You tried, you tried. I've tried and uh, I, I carry the weight of that challenge with me every day. Um, That's good. It's a good thing. I should, I should really try it again. You know, I would like to do it in a slightly less low stakes yeah (laughs) scenario um but that that it gave me a profound respect for the people who've done it that way it is a room it is a much higher anxiety form of animating and it's also a lot more magical to see what you've done um yeah i believe i was watching a video about harryhausen's medusa Oh. It's in, uh, is it Jason and the Argonauts? Or am I mixing it up? That might be in... Might be Sinbad. Something else, yeah. And they were just talking about how many snakes were in the hair and the fact that he was just like somehow remembering where they were all moving. You know what I mean? Unless I'm mistaken, I feel like he, he wasn't... He somehow could coordinate all those different snakes, you know? And that's just yeah. insane to me. He... That that was one of the most complicated puppets I've ever seen um, in that era of Dynavision, uh, which is what he called a uh, stop motion, uh, just to get that extra little. Uh, oh, really? Bring in the crowd. Yeah. Um, uh, and I mean, that was that was subtle too. You know, it's like balancing all of the snakes' movement so that it's not like one of them is moving way faster and drawing the eye, but it's all still just like framing her face. Um, it's an incredible, incredible scene. Um, uh, Flash of the Titans. That's what Flash it is. Flash of the Titans. Yep. 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 That makes yeah, sense. I used to watch that a lot when I was young. Um, it's just, I don't know if it's me, but it just seems like any child would be like, holy shit, what the hell's going on? I don't know if like modern children can see the difference, but speaking of Ardman, when they, they, um, I don't even, I refuse to watch any film they make that's digitally animated because they just look <laughs> and feel, feel just like, like they genuinely feel horrible. Well, uh, it feels like a big mistake to me. I mean, I, I think kids can tell the difference. Um, yeah, I would think so. Yeah. You know, like they're, they're more savvy than ever before with, with what's on screen. Um, when we were doing a little Nickelodeon thing, we had, we were doing all of the mouths um, digitally. Hmm. It's just it's so much more time. All this stuff for printing and needs to be exactly on model to get all the approvals from Nickelodeon. So we had this process of like digital stickers that we could track onto the, the action figures and toys. And uh, we sort of had this uh, uh, test audience. Um, my buddy Ree has a friend with a, with a kid and at the exact right, you know, demographic, the right age to see if he likes this. And his first comment was like, those mouths aren't real. His <laughs> first thing he said, and it was just like the only thing that wasn't real in the entire, you know, everything was shot in camera, but it's like, yeah, those mouths aren't real. Um, so cool. it was, yeah, it, it was, it was kind of affirming. Like that was the, the pragmatic, you know, compromise we, we came to, but, um, it's we've done 
practical mouths ever since. Um, cause it, it really does have it make a difference. Um, uh, so, I mean, it's, you know, Roger Ebert had a, a line that was like practical effects look fake, but feel real while mm-hmm. digital effects look real, but feel fake. And yeah, that's very true. I, I just, I, I love it. I love that line so much because it's just, I, I have a limited patience for subsurface scattering and particle effects and algorithmic hair animation and all these things that are, you know, might make it feel real might, or might make it look real rather. Um, but in the end, it's like a soulless automaton that's just pushing pixels. And I, I, I feel like if there's anywhere that I get like really like woo woo spiritual, it's with animation. It's just like people will pick up on all of these weird things that you might not realize and we might not even have words for where it's just like we can animate and people will realize it was a human pushing those snakes and Medusa's hair around, you know, it's it's not. And like that, even if it's just like an appreciation of knowing that there was a person who did that, this like intentful action that's seen on screen, it just feels like you, you, it just hits me in a way where it just, it just feels good in like the core of my stomach. (laughs) Or just like, yeah, they, they they nailed it right there. Um, It's warm. There's a warmth. Yeah. And it's not this cold, dead, robotic animation where it's like oh this thing doesn't look real doesn't feel real what if the top layer of the digital skin was slightly transparent so the light would bounce around and reflect off of the sculpted capillaries it's just like oh my god guys like (laughs) yeah this is the levels of illusion here we're in the world of diminishing returns i mean I, I, I don't think one day we'll to... talk about robots and humans like this, where it'll be they'll look very close, but we'll feel something. Maybe we, yeah, maybe we thought we fell in love with a robot, but then we saw a human that we fall in love. With. I feel like the there's no way because essentially, if I understand correctly, 3D animation is you're trying to put the the world in a box and then create scenery within that or scenes within that. And thus, you would have to be able to recreate the world exactly for it yeah. to feel real. That is, if a human can even attain such definition. Yeah. You're, you're starting with a blank slate, which puts you inherently at a disadvantage. You know, yeah. like, e- even, even drawing something on paper, like, there is a relationship that you have with the paper the canvas whatever it is where it's informing how your stylus or your your pencil or your paintbrush is moving across that surface there's a back and forth there you're 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 collaborating with reality that's you're you're working with something that's imposing real limits like gravity is going to affect paint gravity is going to affect stop motion there's ways of fighting both of those things sure but it's something you have to account for. And 
it's not just a, a bunch of problems that you're overcoming. You get all these awesome bonuses for working with reality. Like the difference between like just lighting something, you know, actually putting a, a, a light on a puppet. It would take so much time and like rendering or, you know, even for, for 2D animation, like you got to like draw all the shadows and, and light, but you can just literally shine a <laughs> flashlight at a puppet and it's, it just pops. It becomes more. Um, and it's, it's incredible getting to collaborate with everything that you can be curious about. <laughs> you know, it's, it's everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a great medium undeniably do you have time for your actual life given the i know you work very long and it's very intense the work but like i've met animators you know who gave it their own college put out a nice little film and then they were just like you know what i can't do this i'm gonna make illustration or comics something that isn't so i mean comics not a good alternative but you know, something that isn't so time intensive. I mean, I have sort of made a life for myself where I have found a work-life balance that appeals to me. I mean, mm-hmm. right now in the middle of a project, it's there is no life outside of work. <laughs> but it, it's this roller coaster of, uh, you know, feast and famine where you go through a project that's this intense burst of energy or, you know, maybe a intense marathon of, of energy. And then you come down and you have a time before your next project. Ideally, it's not just back to back projects, but it's that time in between where you're like processing and digesting all of the lessons and experiences you just went through and you also you know travel or or see friends a lot more often you know have a bonfire or something and you can just reflect on the intensity of your experience and have the time to just like breathe and then soon enough you start getting that tickle where you want to be in that work dimension where it calls back to you of like that weird alternate perception that you get when you're so invested and carried up in a project that you're obsessed with, where it just scoops you back up and and you can't wait to start the next project. So it's not, it's not about a work-life balance day to day. Mm -hmm. It's a work-life balance, like over the course of a year, (laughs) if that makes sense. Yeah. Over a lifetime. It's yeah. It's a different, it's completely different way of working it's obviously not a nine to five and i'm I'm sure when your mind is on it you have to keep doing it i'd imagine it's pretty hard to stop doing it once you're in the in the zone yeah i mean i would say if if i can i like to never leave a hot set a hot set being one that you're in the middle of animating and then you you call it a night and you go home and you hope everything is the way it looked last night, next morning. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's just a, that's just a reality. It's something that has to happen. You have to be able to have a set that can survive being on its own, being alone for, for a night or two. Uh, Cause sometimes it's just not practical to, you know, 
do a 30 hour animation session, you know, on these crazy feature film, like a jobs, um, they can spend weeks animating shots. The technology is there for it to happen, but, um, there's something about having like an emotional through line of being in a specific state of mind for the course of a shot, but it does get interrupted when you have to sleep and, and come back to it. So it has given me a bunch of times where I'm, you know, here until like three thirty, four in the morning or whatever you, you finish and you look at your shot and you get this huge burst of dopamine. <laughs> <laughs> it's just this, it is this, this, this incredible, intense, emotional experience having finished a shot in the wee hours of the night um, that I, I, I do look forward to. Um, at the same time, it's, it's nice having my own little studio so that I can actually like sleep in until whenever the next day. I've not expected to roll in at nine the next day every time if I'm uh, burning the midnight oil. But um, yeah, there's, it's, it's hard to walk away. Do you find that you have a very robust attention span because of this? I feel like, you know, everything currently in society pushes people towards shorter attention spans, but you're, you're doing something that requires, at least as I imagine, a very long attention span before you get that hit of dopamine that you speak of. Yeah, I think I have taken all of my attention span and put it into this. Um, I, I don't think I have a particularly good attention span outside of stop motion. I think, uh, if I'm not holding it, I forget it. If I like put something down, whoops out of my brain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and you know, it, it helps having a literal, you know, thing that I'm supposed to be touching all the time <laughs> to keep me, keep me rooted. Um, but, uh, it's, it, it's weird. Cause it is actually a battle, um, to have the attention span to animate. Cause there is like, with just, you know, both building other things, running a business, checking emails, whatever on the phone, blah, 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 million people to talk to all of these things will keep me from animating. Cause it's just when I do a shot, you know, I, I have the ability to be like, I can walk away. I can get interrupted and get back into the shot. No problem. But it's like, it's, it's like this wall of micro task bullshit that's yeah. in between me and animating. And I, I'm like, why am I hesitating to get into animation? Animation is my happy place, but like, it's just getting torn in all of these different directions, like doing all of these little tiny mundane distractions. And then I have to like, I have to convince myself to start animating and it's always the right decision every time. I hope, I hope people discover that the joy of concentrating on something. Um, cause I think a lot of people get, you know, sucked into tiny attention spans cause they, uh, they're still looking for their passion. They're still looking for like the thing that, that draws them into a true concentrated state. Um, I think for some people, that's other people. Some people have specific hobbies. Some people have founded and made it their job, but 
I think when people can concentrate on something, it's indicative of a love towards that thing. Um, so yeah. I, I, I hope people find it, you know, cause if we, if we have this atten- like short attention span, you know, the other side of it is like, are we, are we falling out of love with whatever it is that we used to be passionate about? Like, why aren't we fixated on, on a thing? It's so, it's such a, remarkable trait for someone when you realize, Oh, they've been fighting that fight. They've been concentrating on this mission for years or whatever. You know, it's, it's cool to see somebody so invested in anything. That's Uh, true. uh, Yeah. That's a good point. And it's very beautiful idea. And it is interesting that via submission to objective reality, you, you experience freedom. And I think a lot of people don't quite get that. They, they think they can, they're going to find their passion in a certain way. Like they're going to scroll through a phone book of things you can do and eventually one will stick out and they can try that. But I really do believe it requires dedication and submission. And, and I'm not sure I believe it could be anything, you know, I'm, I'm sure stop motion came to you when you came to it. Mm-hmm. But I think that, yeah, when you look at like uh, Mad God, what is that? Thirty years, it says. Yeah. Thirty years in the making, and that's just—I mean, even at this age, I look at old people who've been married the, their whole life, and I'm like, "Wow, that's admirable," you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 hard not to get romantic about <laughs> stop motion. I mean, oh yeah. Uh, I, I I've I've had you know met new friends or, you know, talking with, with people for the first time about stop motion. And they're like, Oh, like, why is like, what do you like about it? And, um, sometimes the way that I reply, they're like, do you realize how sensually you're talking? Like it is, you're, you're verging on talking about stop motion erotically. And it's like, oh, whoops, like, oh, no. uh, guilty. I, guess. I don't know. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny. It's like, it is a sensual activity. It is, you are, you are, it is a touch kinesthetic, like interaction that you have with a puppet. It is, it's more than, you know, sentiment. It's, you're actually having a relationship with these puppets. Um, it also creates life. you you know it's it's you know whether it's like your your child or if it's a literal like ghost in the machine you know it's you're you're injecting your soul into this automaton um and it's it's always wild there's like this threshold that i i like to ask other animators about for like how many frames does it take for you to see the personality of the puppet you're working with. Hmm. Um, and it's like, for me, it's like between like 18 and 24 frames. So like three quarters to a, a second, three quarters of a second to a second. And then something like reveals itself to you where you realize it's not just me pushing a puppet. The puppet's also pushing me around. It, it, it's telling me a little bit of what it wants to do. It's telling me a little bit of how it wants to, you know, how it's going to be articulated, how it's going to, to move its joints. Um, it's, it's bossing me around a little bit and I'm just sort of doing what I can to let it be itself as much as I can. And 
um, I just, I, I love it because everybody <laughs> that animates has this moment where it just clicks and it's like, I'm not alone here. <laughs> there's, there's other, other, other spirit, um, that's happening. And yeah, it's, it is, it is romantic. I think that's a good note to end it on. Yeah. Okay. You know, so I appreciate you taking the time out. I know you got a busy schedule. You know, thanks uh, so much for thinking of me and reaching out. I really appreciate just getting the chance to talk about all this stuff with you. And, um, sorry if I was blabbing, uh, more than that's the point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I am, uh, I'm stoked. I'd love to, to hear uh, more of your, your podcast. When does the, uh, the series launch? Oh, I'll probably start releasing them in a couple weeks. Yeah. Yeah. That's really exciting. Okay. Well, yeah. um, make sure but you send I, me a link and I'll, uh, oh, I'll send it around. For sure. I hope this inspires young people to try stop motion. I think it, I have very fond memories of it. And, uh, it's so accessible, you know, so like, easy. you got a phone. I mean, you yeah. Know. Right. Like it's not, you don't have to, you know, have a studio. You don't have to have a powerful computer. You can just, you can just push puppets. We need more of that. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Have a good night. You too. Thanks again. What a doozy. Music by Dorian Bavarsky and Ming Chichin. Next up, we have Al Gofa. Have a good night.